Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. The court adjudicated several of these children to be abused and neglected. Mark Maples is the county prosecutor. The judge ruled that based on the testimony from child after child from this witness stand, that the punishment a majority of these children had received by the Bethel leadership amounted to cruel, extreme, unreasonable, and disgraceful punishment. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now... Here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys Podcast. I'm so excited to bring Alan Knoll on the show. We were able to connect in person over at the protest in Provo. I uh, got to introduce myself and get to hear uh, him present uh, his story a little bit. And I've uh, just heard so many good things about you, Alan. And I, I just, I just want to kind of get an introduction of, of who you are for our audience who isn't familiar with you uh, and just kind of let them know how you got introduced to the IFB through way of the troubled teen industry. I was sent away when I was 10 years old. I was a hyperactive kid, but I don't really know why I was sent away. Um, and I was sent to, um, you know, both programs that I went to from the age of 10 to 15 were, um, you know, uh, IFBs and, uh, that's how my life uh, got turned upside down is being sent away to these two programs. And um, what, what was, what was your life like prior to that? I mean, 10 super young. I mean, you're not even in the teenage years yet. Um, what was your, your life circumstances to where it was decided that you would be sent to Bethel uh, to Bethel boys home back at that early age? Yeah, my life, well, my life's always been chaos. Um, I grew up in a broken home. Um, my mom had been married and remarried multiple times before I was eight. Um, I'd been through, you know, uh, trauma in my life, physical and sexual abuse. So I didn't have any stable stability. I was, uh, and I'd throw temp- temper tantrums, those kind of things. Uh, it was too much from my mother married into money, the last one, and I was too much for him. Hmm. And so they made the decision to send me off. But, uh, you know, those, I, I don't think there's ever been a, 
a point in my life, at least my childhood life, that wasn't chaos or mm. disruptive. When you initially arrived at Bethel, did it feel going from kind of chaos to, I mean, I mean, seemingly instantly there'd be a lot of extreme structure, you know, did, did it feel like a positive thing at first? Did it feel like an escape from kind of the chaos or was it instantly one chaotic moment to another? I always liked church when I was a kid. It was mm. a way to get attention that I wasn't getting at home. I like to go there and sing. And that's how my mother sold it to me. Nobody was religious in my family. It was just, I like to go to church. I like to get the attention. Um, I've always been that way. Some say now even, but, right. um, but, uh, it, it was my way to keep myself, uh, you know, out of my home. So I always liked church. And so she's like, we're sending you away. It's going to be like a, a, a Christian camp. Okay. Right. And, you know, it was just supposed to be for a couple months and, um, you know, the, and that's, it was really my thing. And, and that was the selling point that my mom used, uh, to try and convince me that, you know, this is going to be fun and not, uh, what it ended up turning out to be right. both homes. I was taken, uh, Bethel. I was by my mother and to agape by my first stepdad. Hmm. And it's pretty common that people will be transported by bounty hunters or be right. tricked sometimes by other family members. Um, I knew where I was going. So I had that at least I didn't get taken in the middle of the right. night. And I'm thankful that I didn't have that added to my trauma as many survivors have to deal with the trauma, of just that aspect alone. But, um, and, you know, going there, it was not, I mean, it's chaos. You're, you're away from your home. It wasn't as violent. Bethel wasn't as violent at the start. Um, you know, two months, it was still violent. You're still getting hit with sticks and those kind of things and really structured. And uh, so, you know, during you're quiet, you're shy while you're in a place that you're, you know, and I, I'm from Seattle and I got sent to Mississippi. So these people talk funny. The weather's yeah. weird. There's these giant bugs and snakes. And so I'm 10 and that's just how I was. I was a 10 year old, more fascinated in the change of scenery than I was, uh, you know, having an understanding of what was about to take place in my life. Yeah. Now I remember you saying that at, uh, at Provo, I remember that there's one thing you mentioned noticing was just like, even the accents of everybody was different and, you know, you yeah. kind of cushioned that statement because you didn't want to come across offensive at all. But like, I, I, I think what you speak to is kind of the culture shock, you know, it's, it's going from at 10, you know, your immediate surroundings and you have a very vague idea of the outside world. And so to be thrust into it and told to just act as if everything's normal is gotta be, gotta be a pretty strange situation to find yourself in. Um, so yeah, when you're 10, it's not just the staff or the, the structure. You're also dealing with a bunch of older teenagers that yeah. you know have anger and those kind of things i was the rat i was the little boy that was annoying you know so i had both sides of it right what what was the age range from at bethel i kind of know agape which we'll get into but with bethel was it about the same was it like everywhere from 10 to 18 was it a pretty broad group of people later they went they lowered their age quite a bit but uh when i was there there was three people I was the youngest, Sammy and Lucas, and uh, and that was it. That was under 13. Okay. Everybody else was generally 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, and so um, later they would, you know, change their criteria to get more population, those kind of things. But sure. um, I was definitely one of few um, young ones, excuse me. Right. Um, and did, was there any separation how you were treated based on age or were you kind of just expected to fall in line with everyone else, regardless of, of age. 
Um, so I talk about this when I tell my story or, or in the book is, uh, yes. So for me, there was, because it's hard. We're still, I mean, as sadistic as some of these people were, they still have that human, you know, kids are cute. You, you know, there's still that semblance. And so I was treated differently than others, my early months there. Um, and I could go hang out with the family. I didn't get involved with all the discipline aspect of things. I later found out that they were trying to adopt me and my mother had told them no. And that's, and then, so I had this, you know, where things were cool. Bethel was okay. It was not that bad. Uh, besides being away from home, my brothers, my family. And then, you know, I didn't know that that's, I just knew that one day everything changed for me. I was thrown in and I was still 10. I was thrown in with everybody else. I was treated an outcast by the family. I now I'd made friends with his kids and his wife. Mm. And, um, and so I was thrown into this thing as if I'd done something wrong. Nobody ever told me anything. I was being punished like everybody else as if I was 16 or 17 years old, the exact same. Hmm. So what was, you know, you talk about kind of the general treatment. What was the day-to-day there? I mean, obviously when you first got there, it seems like it was very different, but when you were kind of in the, you know, for lack of a better term, general population of it and, and were treated as an equal, what was a day in the life of a Bethel student? Well, it was early. So a day, so there's, Bethel's divided. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I was there for both terms. So I'll just start, I'm just going to pretend like it wasn't divided. So Bethel was a divided, um, you know, at first it was bad, but not that bad um, compared to what we would soon deal with. Um, and um, so during those times that, the, you know, the, the our day-to-day lives was quite a bit different than what happened when William not arrived. Um, so I can answer both if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to know first perspective when you still kind of have the, the lens of like, Oh, this is just a, you know, a good, you know, church camp to go to at first. Yeah. So when I got to Bethel, the day to day life was, I mean, um, you know, get up at five in the morning, go down, uh, chow, eat chow. Um, they'd usually put us to school pretty early so that they could get us to work by about 10 or 11 AM. So we'd go spend about two or three hours in church or in school, excuse me. And, um, so, and Bethel at that point was, is, it was all about, uh, you know, we, they would contract us out to the pecan farms or to the, you know, air force base to do work there or, um, you know, uh, building houses on the property and they would sell the houses. And so that's, that's the most that I remember of that time. I was also really young. The trauma was still, you know, like I got caught cheating and, you know, they make you go pick a stick. Right. Um, I was cheating on my paces and, um, and the guy's name's Bubba, you know, um, and he's Herman Fountain's son um, that ran the school. And uh, he's this good 350 pound dude. I mean, just big old fat guy. And I remember like, you're going to hit me with that thing? I'm like, I'm the size of your arm. Right. And so it was structured abuse, you know, besides all the, you know, but it was still abuse, but it wasn't nearly of what I was about to deal with. And so at the day to day life is we would do work. Um, we do school. We do work. We'd do our chores in the dorm, we'd eat, we'd uh, clean our uniforms, those kind of things, get ready for the night. And that was just every day. And then, you know, obviously we have church, we, we'd have uh, um, a chapel every night and then church uh, three times a week right. um, throughout. And, um, and then when William not got there, things, I mean, literally we were asleep when he got there. Um, he got there early in the morning and he just turned on the lights. He was with Herman Fountain. And it was a, from that point on, it never stopped um, ever. 
Um, and he was literally, I mean, it's just some black guy that comes in that nobody knows. And he's yelling at everybody and counting down. He's like 20, 19. I want you in formation outside. We don't, you know, nobody knows this guy. Right. And so, um, and he says, you know, that he's going to throw, um, if you're not out there, he's going to throw, um, throw whoever's not outside off the balcony. Right. And one person didn't, and he did. Um, but, um, so, and that's how it started with William Not We were literally asleep to uh, chaos and it, and it was chaos all the way through. I mean, this guy was, um, sadistic. He's sitting in, in a prison cell now. And as you know, by doing this, these guys are really slippery. So when you go to prison, you've done some bad stuff. Another story breaking right now. Three people convicted of child abuse at a residential youth home were sentenced this morning. Pastor John Young, William Knott, and Alicia Moffat all sentenced to 20 years in prison for each count of aggravated child abuse. The three ran Saving Youth Academy. The guilty verdicts were handed down last month. Some teen victims testified they were abused and locked inside rooms for several days at a time. I mean, he would sick dogs on us. I was essentially waterboarded where they make you exercise and then they would make me lay on my back and they would put a foot on my chest and, and they'd have three, five gallon buckets of water right. and um, they would pour it over my face. Um, and so, I mean, and that's, those are my stories, but I don't want to get too much in the weeds. I'll let you kind of uh, ask your questions, but uh, that never stopped. Um, and, and then the program went where school didn't matter. It was just work and discipline. Right. So really, the the shift came with the hiring of William Knott then? Yes. Um, what was his background? Like, where did he come from before that? Was it something where he was already working with homes like this? Was he just some random friend of the families that took on the job? Like, what was kind of his background there? Yeah, so, um, and I'll give you a little bit of both. You'll get two backgrounds. So William Knott was a former Marine, mm-hmm. and he was kicked out of the Army, or the, the Marine Corps. and. Uh, a few years before I had gotten to Bethel, the state raided the home and mm. took the children, uh, took all 73 kids out of the home and Herman Fountain punched a cop, um, in the process. He went to prison for assault on a police officer for one year. The court adjudicated several of these children to be abused and neglected. Mark Maples is the county prosecutor. The judge ruled that based on the testimony from child after child from this witness stand, that the punishment a majority of these children had received by the Bethel leadership amounted to cruel, extreme, unreasonable, and disgraceful punishment. He met William Knott in prison, and um, he got out before Knott did. And so that you know, that's he would get staff members that had nowhere else to go because he would control them, those kind of things. And so that's how not got. He never had any experience that I know of of being in programs. Um, and he, Fountain would bring in people all the time that he'd met in prison, and um, and you know nobody stayed around as long as Not did. But uh, that's that's kind of how Not got there, and and was through their acquaintance in prison. Well, I mean, it's it's stunning that even with a background where he had done prison time, that he was still able to operate a home. I mean, just setting that aside, the fact that 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 was still okay for him to do that, um, or that the reason he went to prison is because they already had come in to take, say, you're abusing these kids, we're taking right. them out, and then to still forget the assault. Really? He'd been shut down. They pulled the kids. And then to still just get out and start it up like nothing happened. He did it four times. He's still running a program today. 
uh, but right. he moved on to adults, vulnerable, vulnerable adults rather than uh, children. Right. Um, what was kind of, I mean, so you, you said there were like 70 plus kids or like 75 plus kids at the home before it was shut down. Um, how many kids were there during his return and like the time that you, you were all there? Yeah. So when I got there, he was, you know, prison, obviously lost everything. And, and I yeah. got there pretty close after he got out of prison, they were poor and there was only about 40 kids mm. um, when I got there. So there's about 40 or so. And, um, you know, he had to reestablish himself. And so it was a pretty small school at the time. And by the time I left, I think it was over 100, 110 um, students. It was also how the program was when I got there was pretty lax. Um, we had clothes like we had to wear our church clothes for, but we still had our clothes that we brought with us. Um, and, you know, things were pretty, I mean, besides working and having to deal with the bullies of the fountains, it wasn't that bad and not changed. I mean, every structure, how we folded our clothes, how we organized our lockers, I mean, every aspect. And so Herman and the fountains, I, I like to call it uh, pre not. that's what we call it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, amongst the survivors is, uh, you know, night and day uh, on how it was. I think that's why they brought not in is to say, Hey, we're going to make this a boot camp. We're going to, we can, we can mark up our price a few thousand dollars. You'll provide the discipline to keep the kids from revolting. And this is going to be great. And that, and they went with it. And you, and that's when you guys switched to like the uniforms and everything like that. Right. I mean, that was when that shift kind of happened. Yeah. We started wearing uh, camouflage uh, um, BDUs and boots and then uh, we still had our dickies for church and school. Hmm. Um, and so, I mean, um, no more clothes, no more nothing. Um, like, that, you know, before not got there, we could get like a commissary where Herman Fountain's wife would go out and we could like make a list, right? Like we want combos, soda, some top ramen. That was all gone. There was no more access to the outside world um, and definitely no treats of any kind. Right. Well, I definitely do want to kind of circle back more on the, on the day-to-day stuff um, as far as like the, you know, I mean, obviously there's like, there's three, there's two or three people that are in prison, right? Based on their affiliation. Yeah. So they took three out of uh, Restoration Youth Youth Academy. And I didn't know the other two. I only knew William Knott. He was, you know, he, he was the, you know, the guy that went and got it done after Bethel was closed officially. He, he moved, uh, stayed over to Alabama started the program up so the other two i don't know the fountains have managed to escape um for now they've managed right. managed to escape uh, the law um but we'll uh, see yeah well i'll definitely circle back on some of that but I, I am curious you know you weren't you obviously weren't a part of like the ifb movement up until this point you had gone to church you know on and off i would i would i, I mean would it be correct to say like kind of like a lot of americans are are Christian in the sense of, you know, occasionally you'd find yourself inside of a church um, with family or were you pretty, were you, was your family religious at all prior to this? None. Uh, my family, uh, I would walk to the church. It was the way to kind of get rid of me on Sunday. And that's kind of how it was introduced to me. Why don't you go to church? Go, they'll sing songs. And then I met people there and they were nice. And, um, and so I liked that part of it. It was a safe, you know, I was kidnapped when I was a little baby. Right. So I mean, my whole life was chaos. That was my little safe place. Right. Were were you, were you, did you consider yourself religious when you started attending or was it more, you didn't really identify with the faith aspect more, the, more the just location you appreciate the location as much as any 10 year old understands. Right. Right. You know, and and that's really, no, um, you know, it's like, 
I know I didn't get sent there because of doing bad stuff. Like, you know, a lot of kids do a lot, a lot of kids make poor choices and they end up, you know, the parents say, Hey, we're going to straighten you out. Yeah. 10, you know, whether it's religion or knowing the difference between right and right is, or right and wrong is pretty, you know, narrow. Yeah. Right. Um, I asked that to, to just say, I know like in places like this, they really pounded the, um, like you said, there was, you know, a lot of preaching, a lot of services and, um, and unfortunately, while there is physical trauma, mental trauma, there's also a lot of spiritual trauma that happens as a result of these places. And, you know, that all ties in with the mental trauma as well. Um, so I was just curious, you know, as a, as a 10 year old growing up over the next couple of years and kind of those most formative times, you know, did, what role or, or how did you um, you know, accept the messaging of the school? And did you feel like it gave you a, what was your, what was the role of the religious side? I mean, for you personally, while you were in the home? Yeah, obviously, you know, I went in there thinking that, you know, my parents had sold me as this being a camp and I did like church. I, I, and even, you know, Fountain is a, 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 an incredible um, speaker and preacher. He knows not to be long winded. He knows how to keep the attention of the crowd. The songs were always fun. Um, so that part of it, um, you know, and even with the discipline, I could deal with it. Um, it sucked, but my life wasn't too much better at home either. So, um, but, um, so I bought into it a little bit, you know, I, I would sing, you know, um, you know, and try and please obviously, but I didn't really know. I could barely read the Bible as an adult and understand what's going on. Sure. uh, Yeah. And so, but after not got there that, uh, no, they, um, I watched them get wealthy off of us. I watched how their tactics of manipulation. I was always a smart kid. And, um, and so, you know, I would just, you know, and, and same with agape, you know, we'll get to that later, but, um, especially with agape, you know, that was, I was older there and I really had an understanding and, um, I never bought, I mean, I would listen and do the things that I needed to, to get by, mm-hmm. uh, most of the time, but, um, no, I, in fact, today, even today, I, I won't step foot in a church and it's a shame, yeah. um, but I won't go to a church. It's, it's, uh like walking into the enemy's territory, I guess. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I know that, um, I mean, obviously you've covered quite a bit of this in your, in your book, surviving Bethel, which I'll definitely like, include a link to so people can check that out. So I don't want to, I don't want to spend too much time rehashing everything you have in there. Cause I definitely want people to check it out. And then I do, um, I do want to talk more about the advocacy side, but just to give a, a picture, I know you mentioned when he first arrived, but can you just kind of walk through like what the, what the, you know, I know we mentioned day to day, but like, what were some of the the physical abuses? Cause there was a lot, I mean, Bethel, even more so than some of the stories I've heard from Agape, Bethel was extremely physical uh, in their, in their punishments or, or, or abuses. Um, can you just kind of run through like the attitude of the staff and like, what what life was like kind of being under that environment yeah so bethel was um you know not only were they brutal but they would i mean they did a 2020 interview and they're showing these bruised and bloodied kids and and uh, on live television yeah i don't see a problem with it it's none mm-hmm. of the state's business um so they were openly um you know defiant and saying i'm not doing anything wrong here it's what my god tells me i can do with children right. uh, uh spare the rod, spoil the child. And, um, so, but as far as, I mean, and that's just the creative, how they would create punishments were just insane. Um, so, you know, um, once not got there generally before not got there, it was just, uh, um, like you'd get licks, 
you know, getting hit with a stick. Right. Yeah. Um, but, um, and you would have like stupid things like digging a ditch from one end of the property to the other, those kind of things, push-ups, calisthenics. Um, when not got there, it was extreme physical, um, you know, just like the military. Um, so, you know, you're doing up, up downs and push-ups and all these things. And, and, and that's how he ran it. If one person messed up, we all messed up. And, uh, but he would come up with these just insane ways of, like, I almost, I, you know, I never even thought about it until this conversation, whether like he was just sitting in prison thinking of these things, but, uh, um, you know, whether it was, you know, he would say Yando Schmidi, uh, he had two pit bulls, Diamond and, uh, Polo and Polo stayed on my bed. That dog loved me. But if he said he, but he was scared of him. And so if he said Yando Schmidi, I'm running like the devil. Right. And so very common for people to be, and he did it and he would just laugh, right. As kids are trying to get away from the dogs are jumping top bunk to top bunk to top bunk. And the dog climbs up on the lock, locker and he's doing the same thing and they're just laughing. Right. I mean, that's how crazy this is, but, uh, mm. um, but they would do things, you know, we had a pond, we had a swimming pool. So, you know, he would make you tread water. He would just sit there and he'd have his uh, diet Coke with him. And he would just sit there and seven, eight hours and uh, with a giant stick. So anybody that uh, like tried to touch in the pool, he'd hit them with a stick, right? And then in the pond, he would just keep them out deep enough where they can't touch. So, and then, you know, there's times where people would go under and, uh, you know, um, they would give them mouth to mouth. And, you know, uh, speaking of that, there was a story, one of the guys that we work with, he's here locally in Seattle, um, Franco, he was drowned in a dish sink. Um, and I remember that day distinctly. Uh, because they had these uh, rolls out and they hadn't been cooked. So it was real yeasty and, you know, they swell up. And I remember watching them hold them down on the water. And I was, I think I was 11 at this point. Hmm. And it was just overwhelming to me. And I just took this pan of freaking rolls outside. And I was just throwing them in the tree because it was all sticky. Um, but they would, you know, th- so they would do the drown and resuscitation. They would do the cattle prods. I mean, they, they would come up digging stumps out with a spoon. And, and you cannot come into the dorm or go to bed until you're so winky or i'm steve davidson everybody at the facility called him winky but um he had to dig an entire stump you know out with a spoon Mm -hmm. um and he was out there for weeks um and slept outside and everything was not allowed in the dorm so they would come up with these little little things um or they would um if they wanted to beat us they wouldn't do it um, I mean, fountain always was hands-on and I mean, they would do it, but it was more like throwing you around, not would punch people. Fountain would slap people. So it wouldn't leave marks. Fountain already knew he'd been through this. And, mm. um, so fountains thing, not with not, not would generally deal with you yourself, but was to turn us against each other. Um, when kids would come in and they had an attitude and that's, he would reward people for, you know, messing up these kids, you know? And so they would, I mean, I could talk forever about the discipline forms and, and the crazy things, uh, but they just, they had this ability. I mean, whether it's standing on the wall with a locker and, and these aren't lockers, these are made, made of solid wood and they're about two feet tall by three and a half feet long. And it's a good 60 pounds. Um, and you're doing squats with them. And then every time you, you, you know, he always had a stick or something with him, or, you know, if he really didn't like you, he'd just beat you. Um, right. So yeah, it was pretty brutal, man. And it's, this is the most I've talked about it since I've written the book in detail. Um, I don't like talking about it. Um, I usually, I just wrote the book and quit talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then, so you ended up getting shuffled to Agape. So did your parents just find another 
No. No, no. Uh, I left Bethel in 99. And uh, no, I fought Bethel. So I, um, I it, well, I can tell you the story if you want to know it. But um, I, I left Bethel because uh, I was kicked out of Bethel um, mm. and saved by the Got it. Um, and what, what led to you being kicked out of Bethel? Yeah, sure. So at, at Bethel, I had about had enough. Um, I was getting older. I was dealing with the kids. You know, I was always the runt. You know, you can see the pictures I'm, and yeah. I can send them over to you. But I was a little runt and, um, and I was mouthy. I was always mouthy. I'm, I'm still am sharp witted. And so I had, I was tired of it. I was tired of, you know, worried about getting attacked in my sleep by the kids. I was tired of dealing with the staff. And what, what had happened, the catalyst is I'd been, it was, is a couple of things. I'd gotten punched in the eye, um, by a staff member. My eye was completely out. Um, mm-hmm. not like, not like, but out, um, not like the eyeball, but swollen out. And so I'm, I, I said, screw this. I'm, I'm so I broke into their office. I called 911 and the sheriffs come down and I see them from the dorm going down to the house. I'm like, all right, cool. So I go down there and the sheriff's in there talking to the fountain. And, uh, you know, he'd come out to ask me what happened. goes back in the house with the owner and then comes back out and goes, well, you won't get smart next time. Will you got, got in his car and left. So I'm like, man, he's emboldening these guys. I'm going to die here. I'm going to die here. And that's really how I felt. CPS had left us twice um, with so, I mean, these kids would run away. I mean, and they knew, but they would leave us. And I, I just don't understand and never did understand why On CPS. Well, I mean, because of the religious exemptions, I mean, CPS had yeah. very little say, I mean, right. Well, so, and that's just it is the thing is, it's just like the is doing yesterday and today is, these are troubled kids. They're lying. No. Uh, um, you know, he got in a fight with one of the other kids, you know, or whatever. I don't know what the conversation was with because um, they, they went into the house. And I don't know how they explained that. But when CPS came, they were right quick to pick me because I was the littlest. Right. Mm. And they pulled out a tape recorder. And I said, I'm not telling you nothing unless you get me out of here. And, mm. and they told that we're going to take care of you. And I told them everything. And they not only told the fountains that I told them all that, but they left me. Um, and that was really the end of any standing I had there, um, yeah. with you know, not being beaten because of my size. Right. And, yeah. um, so th- there was that, and then they started a girl's home. So all this happened really quickly and started a girl's home and I'm, you know, 13. So they put me, uh, I was probably 12, almost 13. And they put me next to the girls while they were waiting for the girls school to be built. And when we were in school, well, I'm passing notes to the girls. Well, anyway, somehow the owner got a hold of the notes. And I got called down to the house and uh, he had a razor strap in his hand and he beat me for, I don't know, probably five minutes straight with a razor strap on the porch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, normally he, he, when he would do stuff like that or punish you like that, they'd say, all right. And then talk to you. So you're not upset. And they try and get you to where you're not going to like run away to cause them more problems. And so he did that and he goes, now go on boy, go back to the dorm. And I just said, no. And that, and that's what went on for the next two months. They beat the shit out of me. Um, I mean, uh, to the point where I just, I don't, I didn't care. I didn't want to live anymore. If that was going to be my life, I didn't want to live. And, but I certainly am not going to comply with them. And, um, and so this went on for, I don't know, for about two weeks. They, they, they tried, they tried everything. Uh, they tried to turn the kids against me and punish them because I wouldn't do the exercises. I wouldn't do their, whatever they wanted me to do. And right. so it was everybody else getting screwed up. And so anyway, that's how it went is 
But then they were worried they had to leave me alone finally. They couldn't do the resources. The difference between Agape and Bethel is there was like five staff versus yeah. Bethel or Agape where there's, you know, 30 or 40 of them. So they had to keep control of the kids. And that's why I left uh, Bethel is they were worried about the influence I had on, uh, hey, wait a minute, he's got something here because yeah. they can't beat you forever. Uh, right. And so um, they told me, well, your mom's going to take you to Agape. Hmm. Um, okay. So right. off I went. Right. Um, what was the shift like going to Agape? I, I know I've heard you mention, you know, Agape was much, much less intense than, uh, than Bethel, but what was kind of the, the shift there? And, you know, were you relieved to be there at first again? Did it feel like, again, I'm getting away from kind of this insanity or did it feel like you were from one frying pan into the fire kind of situation? No, I was pissed off. Um, is to put it lightly. So when I left Bethel, I didn't go straight to Agape. I went home and I was home. And then my dad took me to Agape from home. And I, and I didn't get the opportunity to like, you know, that's what that always says is uh, you, you're too rambunctious. You chase your brother with a stick one time. Oh, um, so yeah. anyway, I was mad. I was real mad. So Agape, I actually didn't think that, you know, I just, I was like, I, no, I felt like I was going to the same place. I don't know. That's my only experience in my life is yeah. that they're all like so I was terrified. Um, and I went in there, you know, partly rebellious, but also trying, you're uncomfortable. Thank you for taking this campus tour of Agape Boarding School. Agape was founded April 1st, 1990. Began in Stockton, California. My brother and Mrs. Jim Clemenson. They started the school in their home, but it soon outgrew that home. Agape is a school with a heart in the heart of Missouri. I had my promise for quite some time. I was on the buddy system for about double what normal people are, which is the system where you, they do shirts at Agape. You know, yellows for the newbies or people that don't want to listen. So I stayed yellow shirt for a long time. But um, and Agape, you know, I, I I like to put this in perspective. Agape was no doubt I've been elbowed, swatted with a paddle, not a stick, but a paddle multiple times. Yeah. Uh, restrained, I don't know, um, thirty or forty times um, at Agape. And, you know, where they're twisting my arms and that kind of stuff. And it's bad. It's terrible. Um, and, you know, Agape has a lot of more of the structure and, you know, no contact. Same kind of concept as a lot of these programs do. And so there's, it's, but it's just when you're living in fear of death and it's not that it's just, I can't take away what I lived. I can't say, Hey, this was still, but in my head, I'm like, eh, this is cool. I'm good. And it's not, the only reason is because what do I have to compare it to, right? Mm -hmm. And so I make, you know, I make a point that when I talk about it, that agape absolutely was bad, but from a 10 year old who had never experienced life and had just gone through that to there, in my head, I've never been able to shake that feeling of, eh, it's okay, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, and so, and I shouldn't, uh, but the comparison is, I mean, uh, night and day. And so I'll let you go ahead and I'm rambling a little bit. No, you're fine. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the weird part of the situation is that you went from incredibly abusive to abusive, but less so. And, you know, in comparison, one of those things seems better than the other, but like you said, you're at that point, all you knew was bad. So it was like, what version of bad is preferred? Um, so, so, I mean, I've had a couple people on that have talked through like all the punishment systems at Agape and the, and the shirts and, and everything like that. Um, yeah. but, but just from your perspective during the time period that you were there, 
which would have been what years? This would have been. So I was um, at the Gap page from 99 uh, through 2001. Okay. Okay. So during that. Uh, I left after 9-11, about a, a week after 9 So you would have been, you would have been 15 when you left then in 2001. Um, so, so during that time period, the early, early two thousands, um, you know, was it as regimented as say, you know, what I've heard, you know, into the, like the later two thousands where, you know, because it seems like it's gone through a lot of waves as far as like being truly horrific, awful to, you know, being very bad, but less so to, you know, I, I just spoke with someone earlier today who said, you know, for about a three month period, it was like pretty normal and then it got you know pretty rough again like um what during your time like what was kind of the day-to-day at agape in like those early 2000s late 90s yeah i'll dive right in and really experience is based on how you behaved at at agape there's people that could get through there without ever having an issue um and and i know that like but they're still dealing with the mental side of it but they could get through there without any physical uh, if they could keep their head down and be quiet. Um, and I'm not that guy ever. But um, and so um, but Agape was very much more structured than Bethel. I mean, Bethel had like that. But they it was more, you know, it was all work. Um, I mean, the religion was a ploy for them. But um, and, you know, and probably for Agape, but they made it like this point. So at Agape, it was religion, 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 religion. Uh, I mean, uh, just driven down our throats nine ways to Sunday. So they had that, you know, you wake up in the morning, you get dressed, you go upstairs, you read your Bible for 30 minutes, you go out and haul rocks, whether it's negative 10 or 110 um, at, at about 6 a.m., 6.30, and uh, you haul rocks back and forth. Um, usually during the week, it's just rocks um, that they have you do. So you go out there for 30 to 45 minutes and, and move rock piles from one spot. Sometimes they're frozen together. You got to break them apart. But um and they would do that. And then on the weekends, you're doing like real, real work, unless you're on a crew, like building their buildings and stuff, then you wouldn't go to school. You'd help. Like if you had a skill or like big enough to like be a laborer, then they'd let you skip school to go help build the buildings. Um, so Gape was, um, so you'd, you'd haul the rocks, you'd come back in, you'd eat breakfast and Gape had a thing. Like you always ate the food on your plate. You didn't eat the food on your plate. And which they gave you these incredible servings They're just huge servings. Um, when I was there and there was like this little kid named Bradley, I think he was like nine at Agape and the kid could never eat his food. And so he's always, you don't get another meal until you finish that meal. So they're just saran wrap and that's your meal for breakfast if it's dinner. Right. And so they they have those little things, games that they played. So then you um, eat breakfast, you go down, you get dressed, you go to school and Agape actually, we, we went to school at Agape um, much more so than Bethel. Um, and, um, and, you know, they had the testing, they actually had a school, whereas Bethel was just, here's your pace, do it. Um, and so they had a school and they had some teachers, um, and then you would leave school and, um, you generally get about 30 minutes to 45 minutes free time. Um, and by free time, everything's monitored, uh, for those that are listening that, you know, when we say free time, it's structured free time. And so, um, and then you go down, you change, uh, or you go down, you uh, wash up for dinner, you go down to the dorms and you come back for dinner, you go down, you change your clothes, you go to a chapel, you go back, you shower and, and you do it every single day. Um, and uh, it became monotonous for me. And, you know, I, and super religion, 
or super religious to the point where you have uh, chapel every single night, like a full on chapel service, not 20 minutes, but a full on chapel service. You're talking hymns, you're talking everything um, there. You know, and in order to pass your tests, you had to mem- memorize scripture so you can know the um, the subject that you're doing. What, so, you know, your ge- geometry, but you failed because you didn't remember Timothy one, three, right. Um, you know, or whatever. And so they were really big about that mandatory to read your Bible. They catch you looking away from your Bible. You're on the wall. Um, and, um, you know, and I remember just sitting there every day. I just stared at a blank page for 30 minutes. Um, but, uh, you know, so that's agape was like that. And then, you know, there's always, staff members that would come in that would shake things up a little bit, you know, Brian Clemson, who runs it now. Um, he came in a few times. Um, and you know, he's, he started some different programs within the program and, um, he was always, um, very physical with us. Um, as well as even Scott in his younger years was always real physical with us. And so we had that physical element, there no doubt if you talk back you're getting popped you're getting so brian has this thing about his elbow and i'm sure you've heard yeah. this you've talked to other people the jurassic elbow thing yeah yep and so um you talk back you, yeah you, you you're you're gonna be cleaning yourself up and so um he had that and he was one of the more brutal guys um which is funny to me because they say oh we don't do that anymore but that guy's not changing um if you can do that to kids you're sick. So anyway, I'll let you kind of guide me. Oh, sure. Um, I'm tired, dude. I'm so sorry. No, you're good. You've been, um, no, no, you're, you're good. You've been, uh, you've been crazy busy. And like everyone who is on the advocacy side of the troubled teen world, the, you know, the, there's been a massive amount of attention on it lately. So all the people who I'm sure weren't returning calls are probably blowing up your phone for interviews and things like that and trying to get, uh, trying to, reach out. So totally, totally fine. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to push kind of that direction. I'm with Agape. Um, you know, you ended up leaving, like you said, around nine 11. What was the, what was the reason for which you, you left? Did your, did the school end up take you out? Did, was it your parents were just like, Oh, well, we'll call in or what was kind of the, what was kind of the reason you, your time came to an end there? So my time at, um, Agape ended, less violently as my time at, um, Bethel, but pretty close. Um, I had watched Agape had burned down right before I got there. So they didn't have anything. We were doing, um, you know, uh, school and church in a gazebo hut in the middle of winter. So they didn't have anything. And I watched them. They always preach that they don't do this for money. It's always for us. They don't do this for money. It's always for us. But I watched them. I watched them have little beater cars when I got there. And then they're driving Lincolns and they're buying exotic animals. And I'm, you know, getting older where I, I, I understand I'm learning this, the psychology of people. Right. Right. And I'm learning how these people manipulate us and how they do things. Right. And, um, and so I watched. And, and so anyway, there was a couple incidents at a copy that, that triggered me just like at Bethel. Um, and um, one of them is they would do Sundays. If you did merits, like got, got merits, you could hand in these notes or you can hand in the merits and they'd bring in burgers. Well, I would just go get burgers, whether I got the merits or not. <laughs> and uh, I didn't care. And so, and I got caught and they made this huge deal out of it. And uh, I'd been pretty behaved at that point. So anyway, it became this huge deal. Well, then ma'am comes to me or ma'am, uh, Kathy Clemenson comes to me and, and this was it for me. They said, Hey, your mother hasn't paid. 
this month. We need you to go call her. Come up here with us. And I told them, there ain't a way in hell that I'm calling my mother to ask them for money. Like, why would I do that? And, and they're, they're telling me, no, you're going to do it. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't care what you, what you do. I'm not telling my mom anything. So anyway, uh, and we, so that was it. So um, they didn't make me do the call. I ended up going to the dorm. But uh, the next day, church, nope. I went through the exact same concept. It worked for me at Bethel. So I said, I'm going to do this again. Um, I learned. Um, and, and I wasn't in fear of death at Agape. I was just, I just realized, look, man, I'm 15 now. I started this at 10. I'm going to be here forever. And I don't want this. I'm not a behavior problem. I just, I'm a behavior problem because they make me one. They bully me and I, and I lash out. And that's why I'm a behavior problem. And I always was at Bethel and Agape. I never liked to be bullied. Um, and I struggle with that today. I, I have problems dealing with law enforcement all the time, speeding tickets, because if they talk to me, even in the slightest inkling, I go back to, I revert to that. So anyway, long-winded. Um, I, I wouldn't go to school. I wouldn't go to their churches, which really makes them mad there. Um, they're really serious at Agape about religion, right? And uh, so they would drag me there and restrain me in the church. Um, and so then I would just keep yelling stuff out to try and interrupt it. And I wanted to, I wanted to be the most disruptive as I could at Agape because I knew that that was the only way I was going to get out of here. And so, um, and that, you know, Amanda remembers when she got there, she was just as, um, she was young and, and they'd come in about three or four months. I fought them for significant months. They restrained me every day in the corner in the, in the dining room. And so I would do these things. Um, and eventually um, Jim calls me upstairs. He goes, I'm just going to send you home. Cool. 9-11 happened. I was going to fly, but the 9-11 happened and I had to take a Greyhound bus because they had all the planes grounded. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and so anyway, yeah, I got out and um, I, and I'm going to include this part and then I'll let you ask me a question, but it's important to me that I always include this part for personal reasons, but I got, I got home and, uh, and my mom's, you know, she tries to get me to foster care. My mom's wealthy. My mom's a millionaire. Mm-hmm. And, um, she's trying to get me to foster care. She hasn't seen me since I was 10. She was giving me to foster care. So anyway, um, they take me down to Monroe to meet with the state and they're going to give me to foster care. My dad, who's not my dad, he's actually my first stepdad. He had adopted me when they were married. So he had to sign it over. So he's broke. My dad's poor, has nothing, barely take care of himself at the time, but he stood up and was, we're there and they're getting signed. And he just said, no, I can't do it. Uh, kid's been through enough. I'm going to take him. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I, I will. So anyway, um, I always tell that part of the story because there's good, you know, my life's been fucked and, um, you know, he, I'm not his son, but I, I was a straight A student. I had no problems in school. Um, I just needed a chance to be a freaking kid. Um, so anyway, I'll let you follow up. I always um, like to include the, that part. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously getting out at 15, I have to imagine getting out of a situation like that, you're, or maybe it would just be me, but I mean, I just got to imagine your first instinct is like, okay, that's behind me. Like, I'm not looking back. Let's move forward. Um, but you've stepped into this incredible role of, you know, advocacy and like you're, you're working to try to produce a documentary. You wrote a book about it. You've, you've been appearing at these rallies, all of which I have to imagine take as much as they take a physical toll and take time and money it's got to be an emotional toll revisiting, like even having this conversation, revisiting some of those, those memories. So what was it that, that set you in the direction of, 
I need to reach back and try to help people who are still being affected as opposed to, and I don't think there's something wrong necessarily with needing to just move forward, but I mean, you've done, you've moved forward, but also reach back and try to help people along and kind of raise the alarm on, on some of this stuff. So, so what prompted that kind of spirit of advocacy? Yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, I struggled. I struggled with um, insecurities, not ever feeling like I was worth anything. So I never felt that. And I always struggled and I always had lived my life as an adult. I needed to surround myself around people that needed me hmm. um, you know, because I never felt that I was good enough for me. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and, and if those circumstances moved in my life, then I would go into chaos. I would make terrible decisions and, and do stupid things, live recklessly. And, um, you know, whether it's drugs or whatever. And, um, and I struggled, uh, until I was uh, around 30 or so. And, um, and what made me is I, I was in a relationship, um, with girl and kids and they all relied on me. Well, it ended up not working. It was her kids. Uh, it ended up not working out well. Um, and that had kind of brought me together where I didn't need people relied on me. So I, I could be, I could get myself in order and, and put my emotions aside and not let the depression get to me because other people relied on me. So then we separated and I'm in this spot where I was in a real dark spot where I'm like, man, where do I go? What is the point? What is the point of this? I have no family, you know, my whole, uh, you know, and so, and that's what it struggled. And so what came about is this is my mission. My life is already toast. Um, and, and, you know, I was talking to survivors the other day. The reality is, is, you can do medication, you can do counseling, but the reality is, is there's just some things that you can't get over. Like, and, and that's, that's part of it. Like as much as you want to try, you will all, I will carry this to my death. The, the, you know, and I hide it well, nobody, you know, I have the nightmares, you know, the, the insecurities and those stuff I, that I hide. Uh, people think I'm this happy go lucky guy. Um, hmm. But I learned to act when I was in Bethel. That's how we survived. But, um, and so I just decided um, I wrote my story. Some friends told me to write my story for in a journal and and just to get it out and it was huge it was hugely healing so i and then and it that's all it was was a journal for years and then i call my mom when i would have these bad days and i called her and i want to know why why did you do this to me right and uh the the you know my second stepdad the rich guy he takes the phone from my mom and it said uh well i'm the one that sent you why are you mad at her and i'm like no shit um she chose you over me um, and so anyway, that made me so mad that I just decided to make my book public. And then through that, um, it's just been, you know, it's my healing process. I, I, I've made this, my purpose is I honestly, and this is the truth. I honestly feel like I will never get over the darkness that I got to deal with internally that the public doesn't see. Um, and so all I can do is try and surround myself with things that make it worth it. I've always asked my myself, why, why am I here? Why am I struggling with little bumps and hiccups that everybody has to deal with in life? Well, when you don't care, those hiccups seem like mountains. Mm -hmm. Like if you got, you know, if you got bills and you, and you're $200 short or whatever, you know, when I was younger, that was a huge thing to me. Um, like yeah. now I have to do the struggle because what's the point? It was always like, well, who cares? Why, why am I even here? Right. And so this has been a huge thing for me is I don't want kids to have to feel like that and have that lifetime burden on them. And at this point, you know, I feel like it is healing me. Uh, and I didn't go into this like this. I feel like going out, I meet the greatest people. Survivors are, are some resilient people and they are the nicest. And you'd think we'd all be messed up as Agape says, you know, we're troubled. 
but man, um, it's just, just been really healing. And so the reason I um, got involved was really on accident. I'd written it as a journal. My mom made me mad and I lashed out and published the book. And, um, and it's just been fun. I, and I, I would do the, like the media, you know, whatever media I could get back then. And, um, and people are blown away by the story. They're like, this happens today. Yes, it happens today. And no, I realized nobody knew what was going yeah. on. Nobody knew the damage. And, and one point that I always tell them when I'm telling them is like, look, you know, they are hidden, you know, like I, I left from Seattle to Mississippi and Missouri. So, you know, they're out of state, they're out of mind. But the reality is these people end up so traumatized that, they, that some of them kill themselves. Some, some of them turn to drugs. I did it when I was younger and, um, or crime or, um, you know, they put this burden on society. We can do better by yeah. not creating this system of, of harming our children to where they feel like they have nothing else to live for. And in turn, you know, we can, we can do so much better by, it's so simple, but anyway, um, I'll let you ask the, um, that's a long well, no, monologue. You're leading, yeah. you're leading into exactly what my question for you is, which is, which is the question I often find myself with. Um, and it's becoming more clear, um, you know, the more conversations I have, but, but one of the things that early on when it, when I was first broached for this, cause I, I knew of Agape when I started the podcast, because I, one of the teachers at my school growing up, um, he actually was a former Agape staff member. And so I had heard the PR, like he would present Agape sometimes and was like, Oh, it's great. Saves lives, you know, all this stuff. And so then when, um, when I connected with Amanda Householder and she was like talking about Agape, I was like, well, that doesn't even sound like what I heard about. Um, and then she started telling me her story, um, you know, and then I would, she was like, I was like, okay, well, that's pretty crazy. So there's like, what, like two or three places like this. And she's like, no, there's like hundreds of places like this. And for me, that was one of those, like, wow, this is, this is crazy. Um, but one of the things that I'm, I'm always curious about is agreed we can do better agreed that most of the ones that i've i mean anyone that i've covered on the show but but most of these homes definitely need to be shut down um do you think there's a place for for troubled teen quote unquote programs or homes or do you think it's just a flawed concept in general because that's an area i i do think that there is i, I definitely don't think it's at a large scale but i do think there are situations in which you know kids do need real help. I tend to think it's more on the like mental illness and treatment side than it is the disciplinary side. Um, but what's, what's your kind of viewpoint? And like, as you go to these rallies and speak to the media, what do you want to be accomplished across the industry as a whole? Yeah. So yeah, it's a great question, you know? Um, and so yes, there are circumstances where children can't be in the home personally, keep your kids at home. Yeah. By any means, just I the agree. act of yeah. sending them is something that they'll always live with forever. It's you're not worth it. You're not right. worth my time. And that will live with them. Forget because they go on there. They will suffer insecurities for the rest of their lives. If, if their own parents walked from them, that's mm. a hard thing to deal with, man. And so, um, but there are cases where, um, you know, um, you, it, you can't keep your kid at home, even if you wanted to. So if you have brothers right. or sisters, you know, we had a guy at Bethel that had some sexual deviancy going on in the home with his siblings and he should not have been at home. He should have yeah. been, 
in, in, in a safe, he shouldn't have had to deal with, he shouldn't have been, you know, he was still a child, you know, he, um, so, you know, what he did, he was a child, you know, and so those things, um, you're, you're only pulling them out because of the safety of, uh, the other children in the home. And so, and the reality is, is, um, you know, you said about shutting them down. Um, I make a point to not say that. Um, mm-hmm. I say, if you're going to abuse our children, um, then we're going to shut you down because I, th- I believe that we're going to win this battle. I believe that through public awareness, by doing what you're doing, by doing what we're doing, by everybody, you know, Amanda and, and she's got an incredible story. Everybody's got these incredible stories. People listen because it's hard not to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we go, we're going to force these programs to have regulations where um, in oversight, we're, we're actually enforcing the laws. And, mm-hmm. and, and through that, you know, um, we need to have mental health um, people in there. We need to have phones. These children, if you were to be in a jail cell anywhere in the United States of America, there's phones for that people that have that are sexually abused in, in these jail cells in anywhere. It's a federal it's a federal law that yeah. the inmates can go to the places and get to a phone. You cannot do that. You can be sexually abused in these homes and not get to to a law enforcement person or a third party that's not involved with agape. And, and at the end of the day, um, so, you know, what I'd like to say is, yes, keep your kids at home. Um, and, you know, I'm not trying to make this a, a, a us versus them by saying, mm-hmm. I want to shut them down. I feel like I'm creating this narrative. Yeah. I want you shut down. If you're going to abuse children, period. Um, if you're going to do what you've done, which most of them will, so they will be shut down. But the reality is, is no, what do you got to hide? We're just saying, we want to check on the kids. We need this, this, and this do what you're mm-hmm. going to do. You, and at the end of the day, um, and if not, then we need to come up with a whole different system. Personally, I don't care what the situation was. I'd never send my child to their program ever. I don't right. care what they've done. Um, and, it, you know, any with the safety issue, I would work it out to where this child's not still going to a, 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 an insane route because then it's just going to create this cycle of abuse that, you know, that child's going to end up even more messed up. And it's just going to create this ever cycle. And um, so that's kind of my feel on that is I, I've, I've learned to tell the media and the public is, you know, one, one thing I always like to say is dog kennels, man. If you kick a dog and if you abuse a dog, don't feed them. Um, you're going to jail. Um, we have an, higher animal rights in this country than these programs. Right. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, we have the laws on the books, you know, and the question is, is, well, we're separate state and church, but separate state and church doesn't allow you to go rob a bank because that's your religion. And it's just, we're not going to kind of interfere with what you're teaching the kids. So it's, we need to get our government to be bold. At the end of the day, the laws are on the book. We're saying we want regulations because we can't get behind the doors that, you know, agape locks the doors to the public and and then goes out to the community community and says, Hey, we're this pillar, but they keep their doors locked. They don't let nobody in there. Um, And so, um, you know, we need to enforce laws um, and, and create further regulation and oversight, just like dog kennels or nail salons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I've said it before, but I mean, there's just, there's no religious exemption for abuse and there's no, you know, the fact that there isn't, um, I, I just recently did an interview with a, with a pastor discussing kind of the approach to the triple T industry. And that's one thing he kept hitting on was he's like, if what you're doing is right. He's like, transparency is like your best friend. Like you should, you should desire to be as transparent as possible. Um, and you know, I, for me, that's where I see for, I, I definitely don't think we need facilities at the scale that we do. I mean, they are 
I mean, they're huge money factories for people that operate them. Uh, a lot of them are, um, you know, so I think there are, we don't need them at the scale we do, but I think any, any place that is legitimately trying to be a place of rehabilitation or whatever word you want to say, um, there should be utmost transparency, especially since it's involving Absolutely. kids. And especially if they say they're religious, because I think there should be a, a double layer of, you know, attempt to be moral about or ethical about how you go about doing this. Um, mo- moving into the next, um, in the next couple years, I mean, obviously, you know, there's been the huge bomb of, you know, I mean, the Paris Hilton documentary kind of brought the public awareness up, um, out like beyond the just survivor community or people adjacent to it, like myself, uh, with the work that I'm doing. Um, so you're getting hit up. I mean, there's a lot of stories being written, which is phenomenal. And the work that, you know, you've been doing with, uh, Bethel boys, the Bethel documentary group that Amanda has been doing. I mean, the fact that like TikTok has brought in so much awareness through people like Hannah and Amanda is amazing. Miranda with the troubled podcast. Um, as you look into the next year or two, like what's your, what's your goal and what do you want to see accomplished now that there is this momentum and what can people do who are, who are like myself, who are sitting on the, uh, essentially sitting on the sidelines going like, I don't even, I didn't know this existed. I'm trying to figure this out, trying to be a part and help in whatever way I can. Uh, what's the best way to kind of mobilize from here on out? Yeah. And um, you know, it's a great question and all um, you know, I had a community member at the event, uh, we had some people in the community that asked us that. And so, but I'll get to that in just a sec. So, I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, with all the movement, I see it, there was, it was a two phrase question. So I'm going to do the first one first, um, which is, uh, where do I see this all going? And, and then, and, and then I'll talk about like how, how to get people involved. I see this, um, you know, there's, this is, I, I've honestly felt that the people, um, that's all that matters in this country. And so with this, you know, when, when I started this project, you know, um, how can I, back then there was no media in the 30 years. And even when the media comes, I'm still skeptical right now. They come and then they go, they come and then they go. And so how do we do this? And the only reason we need the media is because the public doesn't know. I I'm out shaking hands in Seattle for hours back before, you know, COVID and, um, you know, every day hand out flyers, getting people, call your Congressman, get involved. You know, uh, this happens, you know, mm-hmm. call your, you know, call your local government officials and say, Hey man, this is unacceptable. Why, what is going on up there that you guys can't do simple things to protect our kids from child abuse. That is the easiest law that should ever happen. And, um, and I said that over there, you know, the, the fact that you and I are sitting down right now having a discussion about separation of state and church was totally different. That's what they do when they don't have a winning argument. They change the they change it. Yeah. Right. And so, um, it's not, we just want these kids to have their civil rights. They have the rights to not live in fear to actually just like they do, or, you know, and, right. and the fact that we're even arguing this, no, everybody in this country has the right to not be beaten or abused period. You have the right, those personal rights. So I don't care about religion or anything else. And, and they're using that loophole to try and maintain their standing. Um, where I see this, I see this as everybody doesn't give up. You know, that's one thing about the survivor community. I think that, um, that's really good. That's come along is, you know, even though we have a lot of different groups and a different little factions, um, I don't think there's any animosity. Like, you know, there's a couple of people working on documentaries. There's a couple that do podcasts. It's complimentary. Right. And, 
everybody just keeps and 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 we keep pushing we keep pushing if if one of us need help we go help you know that's why i go to these rallies um is i feel like it's it's trying to be that voice and trying to be you know when people show up maybe i can give them that familiar you know face that makes them more comfortable right or whatever and so and then you know look with the community if these places are in your town they represent you um you know when you allow the people that you elect and, and i'm not saying this in a vindictive or way but i'm saying you know look at history um when things happen in our community and i'm just going to use the mormon church for instance they were you know they started out east they got pushed to missouri the community said no we we're, we're not into that so you can go on. And, and so with child abuse, we should be doing the same thing. No, we're not into that. So we're going to go ahead and do some regulation oversight. You want to, you want to open your doors and say, Hey, um, if you, if you're taking in somebody's life and with that, their civil rights, then, uh, then uh, um, you got to take the steps necessary to protect it. And that's a sacrifice that has to be made. So community get involved. Um, if you see something, hear something, if you uh, run away, believe them. Um, and then, um, these are, these are the people that shop with you. Um, these are the people that are, they're actually using you just as much as they were using us. And the reality is, is we're not, this is not a vindictive thing. Um, and I'm trying to keep that that way. I'm trying to say, look, you know, in Agape, and I know I'm kind of wandering a little bit, but Agape came out with their response to our thing. And, you know, the response is, you know, they call us fame seeking liars and troubled boys. So maybe not in that order, but um, and essentially, you know, there's a few times and there's more than that. But those three, I know for sure, off the top of my head, liars, fame seekers, and these are troubled boys. No, we're men. Um, we're men. And a lot of us are respectable and um, respected in the community um, and, and several of them that I've talked to are, are well, well established in the community. We're not troubled. And then, um, but to come out like that and do the same sales pitch on the community that you're doing to our parents means that you're, you're hiding stuff. I mean, it, like, why are you attacking? If it's not there, the answers, the simple answer is come on in, come on in. we got nothing to hide. Come mm-hmm. on in. And um, we know we absolutely think children should be taken care of. That's what their mission is. Like you were saying earlier is if that's your mission and you're doing good and there's these questions no, we want the kids to feel safe. We want them to have this. We want, you know, we're going to do whatever because that's, we're doing this to help the kids, right? That's what this is about. It's not about money to them, supposedly. And so I'm, and I know I'm kind of doing this long circle. I do, I do that when I'm tired and um, not organized. But uh, at the end of the day is, um, it's so simple. Demand better from our politicians and, you know, and the media. The media as, the media is just as responsible for this as our politicians' mm-hmm. failures. Um you know, the media exists for the purpose of holding our government to account. There was a, a government office of accountability report that came out 10 years ago, 10 years ago, we had hearings in Congress 10 years ago. And this is, this is the thing. The media always says, well, what's the news here? You guys have been out for four or five years. So what, what do you mean? What's the news here? To have these people won't tell their story for 10, 15 years because they're so traumatized. Yeah. But the news is, is that our government holds hearings and says, all right, um, we're going to do it. We're going to have the government office of accountability look into it. So they do this eight month investigation and they spend all this money and resources and they write this nice report and they say, and they detail each allegations of abuses, all the facilities that have them, what we can do to fix it. Problem solved. Silence. We still don't have a lot 10 years later, 
didn't follow their own report that they wanted, right? And so that's it, is hold our government officials to account and hold the media to account when, the, when that kind of stuff happens. Where's the media on that? Hey, right. what are you guys doing here, right? Um, right? And that's the job. And so I mean, so yeah, I'll stop talking. <laughs> no, you're good. No, um, yeah, no, I think that's a good, I mean, that's a good answer. And, that, and that's, uh, that's what I wanted to know. And I, I mean, that's kind of where I've, uh, I've found my, self is like you know it's it's a situation where like i don't you know i'm i don't have the connections internally i don't i don't have this but you know i think you have to utilize whatever platform you have to lend you know lend a voice and and you know allow allow people to share and just listen i think that's a big a big thing too is like there's so much there's so many misconceptions around this industry and around uh, there's misconceptions around any survivor group, but even, especially in, in the troubled teen industry, just that label, you know, just like to be able to brush it off as these are troubled kids. It, it's, you've got to feel as an advocate the same way you did in, you know, when you're sitting in these homes and you know, they're telling your parents that, Oh, well, they're going to lie to you or they're telling CPS. They're going to, no, it's, the it's the same, same thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm and- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so, and, and, and at the end of the day, it's, um, the reality is, is it affects everyone. If you think it doesn't affect you, and, and this, is a, this is a point that, you know, listen, they're going to label people however they're going to label them. It doesn't matter. The fact is, is it's, it's completely irrelevant to, they can call us names and uh, we're going to be above that and not call people names. But at the end of the day, this affects you. If you think that you don't have tr- troubled children and you didn't go to a program that it doesn't affect you, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. and and my point on that is it does affect you it, it we are everybody here is human beings and that's how we need to look at this is like we are better we are so we have the potential to do anything and that's what i like about the survivor community these are the strongest people ever how many people have we sacrificed and ruined and, and that have killed themselves that have turned to drugs because of depression how these people are bright and we're yeah. just throwing them away and then if you still think it doesn't affect you you don't like crime in your community. Right. Well, these people turn to drugs and they turn to crime to support their habits. Sometimes I'm not saying a lot of them, but a lot of these people end up in really bad. I made terrible decisions when I was younger because I didn't care. It does affect you. It affects yeah. your society. You're losing a great opportunity. Most of these people, I don't think I've met. Um, I don't think I've ever met uh, one survivor and it blows me away. Cause I'm kind of, some say arrogant, but, um, these are, um, the brightest people. Um, and usually I'm like, you know, you know, usually I say I'm smarter than a lot of people, but n- these people are, are brighter than me. They're, they're the best of the best and they're held down and we're putting these things, they could be, you know, so much more. And so I, and I'll leave it at that is it does affect you. It affects you on a community level from all the way down, whether it's homelessness, crime, drugs, whatever in your community, um, or just having people with mental issues um and, and in your community that wouldn't otherwise have it. it it affects you um and so don't think you're not touched by this because there's that you know you know probably close to a million of us out here you know and so or if not more i don't know the exact numbers on survivors but it affects you so right. and, and so get involved and and i don't think anybody that hears this is not going to get involved it's just they don't know about it. I've never heard somebody, oh, that's that sucks. But yeah, have a nice day. Yeah, I think there's a lack of awareness, which I'm happy to see that kind of bail get lifted. And I hope that it's not a flash in the pan thing. And I think with the momentum, like I said, I think it's going to keep going. But uh, yeah. 
But Alan, it, I mean, it was great getting to meet you in person, and I, I've heard your name uh, quite a bit in the last couple of months. So it's been good to actually get to connect. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry for the wait, and um, you know, yeah. um, it's really passionate. And I, I love, I appreciate you giving me the time, and um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously talking about my story is always something I, I've shied away from. I won't read mm-hmm. my book again. Those kind of things. I try and stay away from the trauma part of it. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I'm really passionate about the change and I think that we're so close. Um, and, yeah. uh, so yeah, dude, I appreciate you having me and, um, sorry, I'm not, I wasn't prepared. I'm wearing a freaking beanie, um, <laughs> I've just been calls all day. Um, and so, um, it's I forgot. Good. I actually thought it was seven or eight that we were scheduled for. But no, but I mean, I mean, it's all good. I mean, this is all the signs of progress right here. I mean, it's the, it's you're, you're moving on it. I, I mean, I know. I know from just watching from a distance, like that you're, you've been super active. You've been at these events, like, you know, and you've been just a, a really consistent voice. And so um, thank you for doing that. Thanks for entrusting uh, me and the show with your story. And um, I, I hope that this kind of helps fuel kind of that conversation a little bit further. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.